Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the land, not a creature was stirring, especially not a McMahon. With the Endeavor deal finalized and the company took, it only seemed fitting that a hunter got the book. And in the world of all elite, fans anticipated the next signing, while the company owner went social with his constant whining. Impact Wrestling was forced to play the hand they were dealt, as injuries to their champions made them vacate their belts. New Japan fans continue to call it a wrestling company, especially with the AEW arrangement, but let's not kid ourselves, it's all sports entertainment. And as we prepare for a new year, new you, new me, new wrestling and more, join me in reflecting on 2023 before we get to 2024. Hello friends, howdy doody, and welcome to another edition of the Royal Ramble as we are officially counting down the final episodes until the new year. I am back after a two-week absence, and what better time to be back than the night before Christmas? You may have noticed, as I mentioned earlier, that today's episode will be a retrospective one as we look back and reflect on some of the biggest moments of 2023. It was a big year for wrestling fans, and I've got plenty to cover, so I don't want to waste any more time. Let's hop into the old DeLorean and get this party started. New Japan kicked us off on January 4th. The event was Wrestle Kingdom, and like most other years, this one did not disappoint. In fact, we were already gifted a potential Match of the Year candidate as Kenny Omega squared off against Will Ospreay. These guys brought everything they had and left it all in the ring while also leaving the fans wanting more. And in wrestling, more often than not, if we want it, we're damn sure gonna get it. The second match took place later in the year, but this time in a bit of a different environment. In fact, it happened on my home turf at the Scotiabank Arena in Toronto this past June at the AEW slash New Japan co-promoted event called Forbidden Door. I unfortunately was not able to attend the show live as I couldn't justify paying upwards of $200 for a nosebleed ticket. You know, I'm not sure if it's the decision of the venue or the company, but if AEW ever decided to either lower their ticket costs or re relocate to smaller venues, they might dramatically improve their live attendance numbers. Just saying, it couldn't hurt. But yes, that was the second Osprey vs. Omega match of the year, and much like the first, it did not disappoint. It may have even surpassed their first encounter in January. It was actually the first AEW event that I ever ordered live, and I think I definitely got my money's worth. I had my fried chicken from Jollibee in one hand and my TV remote handy in the other hand, so I got the best of both worlds. I really liked the Omega vs. Osprey match, despite all the false finishes in the closing sequence, and of course could have done without Omega being dropped on his head, but aside from that, it was my pick for match of the year at that point. And it wasn't even the biggest moment of Osprey's or even AEW's year. They made the official announcement last month that Will Ospreay had finally signed with All Elite Wrestling. 
I didn't think it was too surprising, as I think many of us saw it coming. And as I mentioned on the board after the signing of Shibata, these announcements become less and less significant when the talent has already worked several dates within the same company. I was actually kind of hoping he'd have a quick run in WWE, maybe even working WrestleMania. But this guy is only 30, so has, still has plenty of time to accomplish that if he wants. Omega took kind of a different path after that second match. He was stabbed in the back, or in this case the head, by his longtime mentor Don Callis with, how appropriate, a screwdriver. Omega continued to battle Callis, even joining forces with his longtime rival Chris Jericho to face a common enemy, as Callis had recruited several talents to make up the Don Callis family. Omega and Jericho were supposed to end the year on December 30th with a tag team title match, but unfortunately Omega had to pull out after being diagnosed with diverticulitis, meaning that he may also miss the majority of 2024. Someone that we expected to miss the majority of 2024 and 2023, in fact, was CM Punk. He had seemingly burned all bridges, but was given a final chance with AEW. He was actually given his own show, Collision, which ended up becoming everything that Rampage should have been, but it seemed that neither Punk nor the Elite could let things go. They continued to exchange words, not only on social media, but also on television, and it eventually reached a boiling point at the All In event this past August, as Punk had a run-in with Jack Perry, of all people, as Perry allegedly made comment backstage about the glass angle, which Punk took exception to, and all of this took place before Punk was scheduled to face Samoa Joe in the opening match. Following the event, both Punk and Jungle Boy were penalized, with Perry still apparently suspended, and Punk eventually being released. Despite Punk's release, Collision has actually remained pretty enjoyable. I'm not sure what the ratings look like, or the live attendance numbers for that matter, but as a wrestling fan, it is very entertaining. We have crossover storylines between Dynamite and Collision, including the ongoing Continental Classic Tournament, and we also had what was my pick for match of the year between FTR and Bullet Club Gold in the 2 out of 3 falls match. Speaking of FTR, they also had a potential match of the year outing against the Young Bucks at the All In event, which may have solidified them as Tag Team of the Year. That event was probably AEW's biggest accomplishment to date, as they had probably their biggest gate at Wembley Stadium in London, and despite all the criticism about live attendance and ratings, that is a huge deal. That was the event that I was expecting the third match between Omega and Osprey, but they apparently had different plans for each of them. I guess because Osprey was not signed at the time, there may have been a conflict between AEW and New Japan as to where that match might actually take place, but this of course is all speculation on my part. Bullet Club Gold, who I mentioned earlier, also had a pretty big year, but didn't end it on the greatest terms in my opinion. They were involved in a hideous angle with MJF and Adam Cole, but Jay White may have an opportunity to redeem himself if he wins the three-way match next week to make the finals of the Continental Classic at World's End. I may be in the minority, but I actually think Jay White has had a really good year, and I've liked his run in North America thus far, as I felt in New Japan he was just another guy who didn't stand out enough, and when compared to some of the other talent. In AEW and even Impact, I feel like he's developed more of a personality slash character. MJF is another guy who's kind of had a rocky year in my opinion. He's been champion all year, which I guess is a good thing, but the one thing that isn't good is MJF, meaning that I still don't buy him as a good guy or babyface. This is the role that he's played now for about half the year. 
from his forced friendship with Adam Cole to those dumb vignettes with Roderick Strong in the kingdom to this whole thing with the devil and Samoa Joe, it's all very confusing to me. In spite of all that, he had a good first half of the year, including another potential match of the year candidate, an Iron Man match with Brian Danielson at Revolution. I wouldn't go as far as to say it was the best Iron Man match of all time, but it was probably 1A next to Sean and Brett. Circling back to CM Punk, he didn't have a great year, especially not in AEW. I mean, he continued to be heavily immersed in all the backstage politics, and also kind of aired some of that dirty laundry, as I explained earlier. But he seems to be in a much better place now, and I mean that on a personal level, not so much just where he ended up. I never thought he'd ever come back, but was seemingly welcomed back to WWE, not so much with open arms, but as Triple H said, if there's money to be made, which I think there is, then it was certainly the right call. He does seem to be much happier here than in his previous place of employment, and I think this is ultimately the best thing for everybody. We'll see what 2024 has in store for him, but I'll get into that next week with the crystal ball drop. AEW didn't exactly get the short end of the stick, though, because while they lost probably their biggest star, they gained one of WWE's biggest stars in Adam Copeland, who has seemingly chosen to end his career alongside his best friend Christian Cage, even though they are on-screen enemies at the moment. I do like that Copeland did work to elevate certain acts like the Judgment Day before making his exit. I haven't been all that impressed with how he's been used thus far in AEW, but I think Christian is doing his best work of his career, and I want Copeland to be part of that. I don't think it's doing much, though, to help Christian's minions, Nick Wayne and Luchasaurus, or excuse me, Killswitch. In Wayne's case, I don't really care to see a teenager wrestle, and certainly not when his mother is part of the angle. I don't feel this is the best use of him at all, and I think it's just dragging this overall angle down. There are two others in AEW that I think are having the best runs of their careers, and they are both women. Tony Storm and Athena have both elevated their stock significantly in 2023. Athena has become one of the most enjoyable parts of ROH, and actually makes the show watchable, though I don't think that's a show that needs to be two hours. And Timeless Tony Storm is probably one of the best things AEW has ever done. It's the only character that Tony Khan has ever come up with, and could be the only homegrown star they've ever created on their own. I do think she's being overexposed, but for now it works. And I think Luther really adds a lot as well. He reminds me of a combination of Daddy Warbucks from Annie and Ernst Stavro Blofeld from the James Bond movies, and it works for this kind of character. I'm not sure how Mariah May fits into the angle, but hopefully we'll get more answers in 2024. AEW had another big return last week with Thunder Rosa. I thought the dark hair suited her character better, and to be honest, when I saw her as a blonde and without the makeup, I honestly thought it was Mariah May for a second, which really illustrates my point. She doesn't stand out enough as a blonde in my opinion. I didn't understand that at all. Even her attire was nothing special. But I'll tell you what was special, and that is the fact that Gunther has now surpassed the Honky Tonk Man as the longest reigning and perhaps greatest intercontinental champion of all time. It started with a fantastic showing in the Royal Rumble match, entering as number one and making it all the way to the end only to be eliminated by the eventual winner, Cody Rhodes. Gunther also had probably the match at WrestleMania weekend against Sheamus and Drew McIntyre, which was a hard-hitting affair. And after that match, all three kind of took different paths. Gunther, as I said, went on to break records, while McIntyre went on to sometimes break character, and Sheamus just, well, went on. I think he might be injured, I'm not sure. 
Drew desperately needed something, though, because his character was dying a slow death, and I think this current angle he's involved in might be the best of his career, and it works given the circumstances. Hunter has actually been great at booking these little subtleties and tying angles together. I love that. One of his hottest angles this year was the whole bloodline implosion. It started at the Royal Rumble when Sami Zayn finally snapped and let Roman Reigns have it with a steel chair, and then the two went on to face each other at the Elimination Chamber in Montreal, Sami's hometown, in front of his wife, and probably his best match of all time, or at least most important. You know, everyone keeps going on and on about Cody's story, and the extreme disappointment about Cody not winning the title at WrestleMania, but what about Sami's story? I think Sammy winning the title would have made much more sense than Cody, and I still don't understand why Cody's story was more important than anyone else that Roman has beaten. Honestly, if the plan is Roman versus Cody at Mania again, I think he may lose again, but I'll get into that next week. So after Sammy left, the cracks in the bloodline started to form, which led to the Usos dropping the tag belts to Sammy and Kevin at Mania. By the way, why are there still two sets of tag titles? The belts have been unified for like two years now, what's going on? Anyway, a great match, and then that led to Roman losing faith in the Usos, which eventually led to the Bloodline Civil War, with Roman suffering his first loss since winning the title in 2020, and to Jey Uso, who this whole angle started it with in the first place, which further emphasizes my point in how good Hunter is at tying things together. And then we got the tribal combat match at SummerSlam when many people believed that Jay would finally win the title only to be double-crossed by his own brother Jimmy. I do like how there are still multiple levels to this story, but I feel like it's going in circles now. As one faction seems to be losing steam, another seems to be gaining momentum, and that's the Judgment Day. All involved are having the best runs of their career. And I know I've said that a lot, but Dominic Mysterio, come on! Who would have thought that this guy would be getting this kind of heat at this stage of his career? Damian Priest won the Money in the Bank contract, and while I'm still not confident at this point that he will cash in successfully, he continues to rise up the ranks. And now that there is a second world title, I think a successful cash-in may be more likely. That second title currently belongs to Seth Rollins, who has had an okay reign thus far, but I still don't buy him as the guy on Raw, and especially now that Punk is there, I think a title changes in the cards. That said, this will probably be the biggest match you're going to get out of Seth using who's currently available, at least during his babyface run. On the women's side of Money in the Bank, the briefcase went to Io Sky, who did successfully cash in this year against Bianca Belair at SummerSlam, and to say her title reign has been underwhelming thus far would be a major understatement, but I do like this current angle with Bailey, which is again Hunter tying stories together. And now it makes me curious where this angle is going, which is never a bad thing. WWE has also had some major signings of their own this year, including Jade Cargill, the reinvented Brian Pillman Jr., now Lexus King, and Nick Aldis as the new SmackDown general manager, though I'm not sure if that's the best use of him, but he's done a decent job thus far. And we also saw plenty of returns, including Nia Jax and Kyrie Sane. Speaking of returns, I will return next week with my annual Crystal Ball Drop episode, and much like most wrestling promotions, I will end things here to leave you wanting more. Until we meet again, I leave you with an A-B-C-Y-A.